Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in... Ah, no, I'm sorry. I'm with you in Northern Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C., where I am for the next several weeks. And actually, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, happens to be with us in Berlin. So we switched sides. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So the data point here is $26 billion. That is the total global box office for movies in theaters in 2022. And of course, many of those movies came from Hollywood, California. And that $26 billion, that does not include revenues from television, film rentals and purchases, and of course, streaming, which is how many people access their visual entertainment these days. In any case, the question of how to fairly divide up those revenues has set Hollywood's labor force, primarily its actors and writers, against production studios, leading to the largest strikes in over a decade in Hollywood. And at the heart of these disputes are some fundamental changes in cultural production in Hollywood in recent years. It's day six of the sag after strike by actors, which has shut down most of Hollywood. Actors joined screenwriters on the picket lines to fight for better pay and protections against artificial intelligence. Hollywood actors who are on strike. It is the industry's biggest shutdown for more than 60 years, and it affects the vast majority of American film and television production. From California, Hollywood coming to a halt. The Actors Union now set to strike at midnight. The Writers Guild already on strike. This is- I think by most accounts, we could say that those changes have been for the worse with endless examples of, you know, existing IP being developed into movies. Of course, the many superhero movies that clog up the theaters, etc. I was hoping we could discuss the economic and legal structures that have made this cultural deterioration happen. Structures that perhaps also explain why actors and writers and directors are now on strike. So, Adam, what exactly was the old way that Hollywood made money, at least in the latter years of the 20th century? How did that encourage a a greater diversity of cultural products? It's really fascinating to talk about this, Cam. I have to say I do so from the position of somebody who is actually struggling to remember the last time I (laughs) saw a film made in, in Hollywood precisely for the reasons that you outlined, that I frequently sit on airplanes hopelessly you know browsing my way through dozens and dozens and dozens of film offerings and just not being able to find anything that I can face watching so I talk about this really as a somebody who doesn't really I don't know feel themselves to have any major dog in this fight at this point um so I'm very not going to be seeing no no no, I'm not I mean Oppenheim is perhaps more my cup of tea Uh, I gather viewing them back to back is the big new thing I can see that when have a certain you might need to be, you know, um, like me to be enjoy. You might be need to be basically a little bit high, I think, to really get through that. But, but um, yeah, maybe that's something. I say this also because just I'm heavily reliant on other people's insights. Bunch of really great Substacks writing about this, notably um, Stoller's big Substack, which uh, which really helped me out in thinking about what's going on here. I mean, apparently. As it was, the the cinema that I do remember going to see, and you, you too, no doubt, you know, was kind of 1980s blockbuster. You never really quite knew where the next big film was going to come from. And then something like, you know, Stoller uses the Back to the Future case, like breaks. It's essentially an implausible bestseller. 
I don't actually remember ever seeing it. It wasn't my kind of film even then. But anyway, it made a lot of money, um, but it made it progressively over time. So the, the basic idea here is that when you had a disaggregated cinema studio system, the cinemas played a key role in actually showing the movies, had to, a degree of autonomy in choosing the movies they showed and did so on the basis of information provided to them by the flow of information about how the film was doing in other cinemas and around the country and and indeed even critics made a difference. And so they would recommend films. And so a film would make money over a period of months, very different apparently from the current mode where essentially the success and failure of a film depends on the first weekend, which is prepared by an absolutely massive blizzard of advertising, hundreds of millions of dollars, which certainly you can't be on social media and not be subject to. And we live in a world in which this disaggregation, this separation between the folks showing the movies and the folks producing the movies has collapsed so that essentially due to antitrust rulings, the two have been merged into a single block. And that totally warps the way in which we're presented with films because basically we're subject to a barrage of very highly capitalized gambles on our preferences and where hundreds of millions, I guess in the end it must run almost to billions of dollars, are piled up behind a single film project, which then has to be sold with maximum pressure through all possible channels, starting with the cinemas at release, and has to be earning back that huge outlay immediately, as quickly as it possibly can. And unsurprisingly, that leads to a series of gambles on relatively conservative formats, because you go back to the same thing that sold the last time if you're going to be wagering that kind of money. And conversely, there's also a demand side effect of this, which is that paradoxically, at the same time as this concentration is happening, the technological potential is actually enabling more and more offerings to be made available, not necessarily, of course, in cinemas, but in other outlets. And ironically, apparently in that kind of setting, what also tends to happen on the consumer side is that consumers too, faced with just a blizzard of potential options, opt for familiar star names. Hell, well, yes, I'll go and see of all the range of options that there are on Netflix or whatever. I'll go see the latest Tom Hanks vehicle or whoever the star is that you followed for a substantial slice of your life. So there is this almost tragic situation in which we are in the technological moment, which ought to permit a huge efflorescence of creativity, whereas in fact what we're getting is this concentration. And there is on spanning atop, across the top of this a discourse that says that we live in, or at least we were living in the golden age of television and that cornucopia of, of quality and of diversity was emerging, whereas in fact if you look at the numbers that's not true and what we're seeing is this concentration logic. And so that's the kind of tragic playing out of well, really, the failure of antitrust policy, which then enables these concentration processes to to dominate the scene and dominate the content that we see. Yeah. I mean, could you explain how these changes in U.S. monopoly law as applies to Hollywood seem to initiate this degradation process? I mean, could you just explain a bit more how that worked? And yeah, just what effect does the consolidation of production studios have on its own terms on, on cultural production? Well, there was apparently a, a legal ruling in the 1940s which split the old studio system up, separated the cinemas from the studios on the one hand. And then under Nixon, in fact, in the early 70s, there was a similar ruling which split up the production studios from the TV networks so that um, that created an open market for third-party producers of TV shows. So, you know, 
if you watched um, Seinfeld or the Cosby Show or whatever, you would see at the end this you know fancy logo for a for a production company, which was not the same as the TV channel that you were watching the the movie or the or the show on. And and that created so you then have a three way split. You had studios, cinemas, TV channels, or four way split TV channels, production houses, cinema studios, and cinemas. And that created this very. It created essentially an openness, right? It created a. It created something like a market in which there were there were two sides, and there was information that was being shared. And the result was, and this I think is the kind of burden of this kind of critique. You know, a true market is genuine. Is is may not be socialist or social democratic paradise, but it's a way of overcoming a variety of obvious incentives and interests, which otherwise produce really bad outcomes. And those bad outcomes came to the fore because of the pernicious turn in. Antitrust in the 1980s, driven by Justice Bork, I guess, and the Chicago School of Law and Economics, which opened the door to a variety of more or less self-serving arguments that said, well, it walks like a you know, monopoly, it quacks like a monopoly, but no, no, it's not really a monopoly. It's just fine. You go ahead and do that merger because in the end, we can't really see any serious con- you know, consequences for consumer welfare and it might gain yield various types of efficiency you're doing this and so you know there's also potential competition so even if you actually dominate the market somebody could in come in potentially and so of course you won't take advantage of your market position that you've got there so all of these sorts of arguments began to be offered in in antitrust jurisdiction um, jurisprudence not just on this issue but on a whole variety of others and i think there's a consensus now certainly across progressive circles that this Law and economics, this entanglement of the two was was in many ways one of the most pernicious elements of the, the neoliberal era full stop because it changes the terms across the spectrum in all sorts of different markets, including labor markets, creative labor markets like this one. Obviously, now we're in the streaming era of movies and television shows. Does streaming represent a kind of final consolidation of production and distribution? I mean, obviously, I guess one aspect of streaming is the kind of utter lack of transparency of data. You know, we don't know how many people are watching any given show or movie, much less, you know, what those movies would be earning in terms of revenue if if people were actually paying for tickets. So, you know, what, what effect does that lack of data have on the cultural production system? And I guess, finally, does do streaming services have any strategy ultimately for making a profit, they're not really making money as is right now for the most part. Yeah, so streaming services are really fascinating because they sort of barge in, they're widely, you know, um, underestimated initially as a, as a threat and then quite rapidly established themselves, notably in the form of Netflix, of course, as the model. And they are indeed a radically integrated system. A, you dispense with the cinema, obviously. And then what Netflix has done is to make massive investments in creative talent at first. It did it on a huge scale, in part because it thought that the established studios and established networks were going to preempt it and going to deprive it of access to content. So Netflix's aggressive strategy is born out of a general dog-eat-dog kind of rather Hobbesian nightmare that was playing out in the media space as this technological revolution came along. And the net result, as you say, is as it were to render what was previously a relatively transparent market, which gave different elements in the supply chain of movies a degree of leverage 
So classically, once upon a time, writers would have been you know, entitled to a small, but nevertheless for them, significant share of the ultimate revenue stream generated by their shows. All of that disappears. And so writers essentially deliver shows to Netflix. It pays them a flat fee or you know, hourly fee or whatever. And then the deal is done and whatever profit is generated then remains with with Netflix. And because no data is published on individual viewerships as opposed to subscribers, overall subscriptions, there's no there's no recourse. And, and Netflix's own logic is driven by this utterly cynical search for new subscribers. I mean, obviously, it helps them if they can reduce their wage bills. So they also drive down wages and and there has been a substantial erosion in real terms of the earnings of writers under the influence of this system despite the fact that there's been this huge surge in content creation so what that tells you is there is structural oversupply of people who want to do this creative work and which has swamped the demand side effect of needing more people to actually write netflix has also been ruthless in trying to strip down the writing teams but they also just cancel shows after two 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 series because they because they know that the first two is what generates the new subscriptions and they really just don't care about anything else. And why do they care about subscriptions so much? What's really fascinating is that they're broadly following a kind of a predatory pricing model, which is which was pioneered by Amazon. Like if you invest in Netflix or Amazon, you're not really investing, or at least with Amazon, you weren't investing in the immediate profitability of the company. You were investing in the prospect that it would establish such a dominant position in delivery services, remote groceries, book sales, everything else, that in due course, it would have massive pricing power, market share, and would be able to drive up margins and profits accordingly. So it is a more or less open, agreed bargain between the firm and its management and the investors to, in due course, establish a monopolistic or at least a powerful oligopolistic position and make hay. In the meantime, what you're doing is financing the offensive, if you like, to seize that market share, which is why the entire Netflix story hinges on their subscription numbers, because that's the metric ultimately of how indispensable they've become, you know, how, how impossible it has come for people to imagine life without, you know, Netflix and chill, as the phrase goes. So like that grip on people's lives um, is what ultimately is the business model. It doesn't matter what its immediate profitability is, because in the end, what you're going to be profiting from is the, well, you profit from the capital of, you know, appreciation of the asset you bought because everyone else has bought in on the story. But ultimately, this is going to cash out, you expect. It's the only way of justifying it from the surplus profits you'll learn from the market position. I want to go back to this question of the ownership of intellectual property. I mean, I'm curious whether creative ownership of IP serves as a kind of quality control mechanism. Obviously, these days, as you mentioned, it's the production studios that own the series and the shows and the movies. But that wasn't always the case. The creators used to themselves have a share in owning the IP and yeah, again, I wonder whether there's a kind of basic economic logic at work there in terms of cultural production, that uh, when there's a material incentive for the creators to do quality work, they tend to do more quality work. Does that make sense? 
I mean, I think I think you can see the the logic for that. I mean, ultimately, you might hope, even in an integrated system, that the network would have an interest in producing, you know, decent shows that people wanted to turn on and see. I mean, what Netflix does is to bury all of that because it just doesn't show us which shows are doing well. It becomes completely opaque. It does that because it wants, I think, leverage in its bargaining with the the writers. It knows, it, it presumably itself knows perfectly well what the trade-off curve is there between costs of producing relatively high quality shows and the amount of new subscribers you get. And internally it will be playing that game what it doesn't enable creatives to do is to leverage the success of their shows the model apparently which is widely cited as a contrast to the existing situation in the us is is the uk where in the early 2000s they pioneered a model of outsourcing essentially so required outsourcing the the big tv channels in the in the uk bbc channel 4 itv were required to commission at least or show 25% of external commissions on their network. So commission them from independent producers so as to foster the development of a independent production infrastructure. And that's been hugely successful. And Britain now exports more television uh, than ever before. The, the, the question from a quality point of view is exactly what TV gets exported and you know that the 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 model is in fact simply reality TV and talent contests, talent shows, and so you know I don't. I mean I I really I, I this is where my expertise really blends out. But but we're talking X Factor and you know Britain's Got Talent and and I don't actually even think it includes like Love Island and the stuff that my, my daughter watches, but. But there's no doubt that there has been a huge success story here. Whether you could really describe it as a as a quality you know, question, I, I don't. I don't, to be honest, know. But if you, I mean, surely these formats are novel, perhaps in some sense. So at that level, you could say they were creative and they're successful in the sense they appeal to broad audiences. So, you know, all, all success, you know, all, uh, all best wishes. But. Um, it's certainly a, a commercially successful model that has really driven driven a huge share of global TV innovation in that sense to the UK. And I guess the reformers in the US would like to see a similar set of rules put back in place in the US, which would be something like going back to the, the sort of model that the Nixon era reforms introduced that split you know, production from, from studios. Those sorts of limitations can have very dynamic effects, yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's no surprise that success does not equal quality. And so selecting for success doesn't mean selecting for quality. But I guess finally, I wanted to ask uh, just how self-conscious Hollywood is these days that cultural consumption is maybe just largely or just a product of, of marketing. I mean, I ask because obviously as a result of these strikes, actors have ceased working and part of that work is making new movies, but a large part of that work is like promoting the movies that they've already made and are going to be released. And so they've stopped doing that promotional work. And this has become a a big threat to movies that production studios have made, which just got me thinking, you know, that movie stars, you know, whether movie stars, whether their main job is to be marketing agents. Obviously they act, but it seems like a large part of their role is to is to sort of be these public figures who market their products. And 
yeah, maybe in a sense that's something that's never really changed through through all these various shifts and through the history of Hollywood, though. I mean, I think what has shifted are maybe three things, which is that I mean, the scale is huger than ever before. The amounts of money invested in the marketing budgets for films are truly gigantic, like hundreds of millions of dollars in the marketing and the promotion per se. I think there is also a sense that the star system has stalled and that because of this, you know, this conservative logic, which confines the studios to regurgitating new versions of existing models applies to the actors that appear in the movies as well. And so you have this aging cohort of bankable stars and it's very difficult by the logic of the system to break new people into it. You know, it may be it may be easier to just by AI endlessly regenerate, like rejuvenated and and sort of like Dorian Gray, eternally youthful versions, or perhaps even you know reju- rejuvenated versions of Tom Cruise or something. Maybe Tom Cruise can become younger and younger and younger into the twenty first century. That I gather is also one of the stakes in this dispute: is whether or not one can establish clear property rights to digitally you know, created images of, of actors and actresses and uh, and how they're going to arbitrate the the issue of what, who has ownership to AI scripts generated visibly. You know, if you synthesize, I don't know, you know, some new version of Seinfeld, say, you know, cast me, you know, go write me a version of Seinfeld situated in Paris or something. Like, who has the, who has the property rights there? I think those are two novel elements so the scale, the aging star issue and the question of how you break out of that. And then the third element, I think, is the globality, right? The Insofar as they are doing this marketing, it's truly global marketing. Um, so that the films have to work in all the big markets, notably in China. I mean, to my mind, that I've watched the new Top Gun film over so many people's shoulders on airplanes that I... I feel I have a pretty good grasp of the basic plot. And I saw the first, you know, the first installments in that in that series. And, you know, they were quite impressive displays of kind of American military prowess at a moment when it was quite clear what it stood for. But the extraordinary thing about the new version is that it it is on the one hand a celebration of American military, but the whole thing is so carefully constructed to avoid the obvious antagonist, right? <laughs> I mean... Because I gather like the serious Chinese interest in the film, like financial interest in the film. So, so that's another key element of the story, right? You can't even, you know, what does it mean to make a red-blooded patriotic American film at the current moment? That the very least that Hollywood used to be able to do, and it's not, it's not obvious that it can any longer do that with a view to this marketing dimension, unless the terms are quite fundamentally reset. There have been congressional. There's certainly congressional interest, isn't there, in forcing this issue of patriotic alignment in Hollywood, which runs against the overarching imperative of this, you know, marketing above all, as you've as you've highlighted. Well, we do have to end the conversation here for now, but I may go see Oppenheimer this weekend. You should too, Adam. Maybe we can talk about it in a future episode or a segment on nuclear weapons or bombs or something tangentially related. But uh, yeah. We will leave it here for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Avati, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. 
Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Tooze, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.